listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to Type 2 Diabetes. Don't sugarcoat it. Delivering bite-sized pieces of information to your ears. I'm Dr. John Anderson, and I practice internal medicine and diabetes at the Frisk Clinic in Nashville, Tennessee. It's part of a large multi-specialty clinic, and while I have some expertise in diabetes, I'm a primary care physician. This program is intended for clinicians. The information presented in this podcast is aligned with the views and opinions of the speakers and is sponsored by Novo Nordisk. This podcast is not to be used as medical advice. I am pleased to be joined by Dr. Vivian Fonseca and Dr. Jim Gavin to discuss today's topic, the role of endogenous GLP-1. So Vivian, I'll let you introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. I'm Vivian Fonseca. I'm Professor of Medicine and Assistant Dean for Research at Tulane University in New Orleans. And Jim? Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Jim Gavin, and I'm Clinical Professor of Medicine at Emory University. And I also serve as Chief Medical Officer for Healing Our Village in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, welcome, Vivian and Jim. Let's start from the beginning. I think the story of how GLP-1 was discovered, unlike the discovery of insulin, is largely unknown or forgotten. Jim, could you give us a brief overview of the history of GLP-1? I'd be happy to do that, John. You know, there's a rich history behind the discovery of GLP-1. We can start actually in 1877. Almost 150 years ago, Claude Bernard, whom many people consider to be the father of modern physiology, observed that significantly larger amounts of glucose can be given orally than intravenously without glycosuria. Back then, the physiologic functions of the body were believed to be controlled solely by nerves. It wasn't until 1902 when Starling and Bayliss discovered the first hormone, secretin, and they then coined the term hormone. It was then that this idea of chemical regulation of physiologic processes uh, took hold, and the field of endocrinology was founded. Then about 20 years later, when Kimball and Merlin were trying to develop a quick and inexpensive commercial insulin purification method, they actually discovered a glucose agonist that raised glucose uh, in one of the fractions and named it glucagon. Now, once gene sequencing became available, proglucagon was discovered and sequenced in the 1980s. From the proglucagon sequence, GLP-1 was identified using recombinant DNA technology and was shown to directly augment glucose-dependent insulin biosynthesis and secretion from pancreatic beta cells. Thank you, Jim, for giving us that early history of this important hormone. I'll add to that because I think it's fundamental for our audience to understand the incretin concept. In the 1960s, studies demonstrated that insulin response was significantly greater following an oral glucose load compared to an intravenous glucose injection, even when blood glucose levels were the same when given intravenously. This is the incretin effect, a greater insulin response following an oral versus an IV glucose load. We've come a long way from Bayless and Starling administering crude gut extracts to animals in their discovery of secretin. 
Jim, can you tell us what we know about how the incretin hormone GLP-1 is released from the gut and what we know about its regulation? I'd be delighted to do that, John. Uh, the understanding of GLP-1 is dynamic. It's an evolving science. But what we've thought classically is that GLP-1 is released from the gut from specialized cells called L-cells. Upon arrival of nutrients in the gut, particularly glucose and other carbohydrates, these L-cells release GLP-1 into the bloodstream. GLP-1 then mediates the release of insulin from the beta cells and suppresses glucagon from the alpha cells, both in a glucose-dependent fashion. It is important that there is this nutrient-mediated release because essentially, this is a hormone that appears only when you have nutrients being taken in, which is really important because that then begins to determine how much insulin and glucagon you actually need. And it is biphasic. There is an early release, and then there is a later release. These are important dynamics in the way this hormone responds to nutrient intake to help regulate glucose uptake. GLP-1 receptors are found in multiple organ systems throughout the body, including the brain, for example, which may explain its neurohormonal effects on feeding behavior and satiety. Now, in terms of how it is regulated, once endogenous GLP-1 is released, it has a very short half-life. It is only around for about one to two minutes because it is very rapidly inactivated by the uh, ubiquitous enzyme, dipeptidylpeptidase 4, we call DPP4. Thanks, Jim. So, Vivian, you mentioned that GLP-1 stimulates insulin secretion in a glucose-dependent manner. What can you tell us about this glucose dependency and the role of GLP-1 in glycemic control in patients with type 2 diabetes? This is actually a very important point about GLP-1. A study by Michael Nauck and his colleagues investigated the glucose-dependent insulinotropic effects of native GLP-1 following an overnight fast in 10 patients with type 2 diabetes who received an intravenous infusion of native GLP-1 or placebo for four hours. During the IV infusion of native GLP-1 or placebo, insulin secretion was measured and evaluated to determine whether the magnitude of insulin response was sufficient to normalize plasma glucose levels. During the first half of the four-hour GLP-1 infusion, when glucose levels were high, native GLP-1 infusion significantly increased insulin secretion and significantly decreased glucagon secretion, which resulted in a normalization of the blood glucose. During the second half of the infusion period, at which point the blood glucose came down to normal, despite the GLP-1 level remaining the same, GLP-1 activity tapered off and both insulin and glucagon secretion were normalized. What that meant was the patient did not get hypoglycemic because they no longer had stimulation of insulin secretion when normoglycemic, and they now had glucagon to counter any possible hypoglycemia. So plasma glucose, either high or low, acts as an on-off dimmer for the insulinotropic 
effects of GLP-1? You know, uh, I might also add here that it might be important to point out that we can look upon native GLP-1 as kind of a guardian of insulin secretion. Animal and in vitro studies have shown that one of its important functions is to inhibit beta cell apoptosis. So it inhibits the death of beta cells on one hand and stimulates the proliferation of beta cells on the other. One study measured the insulin secretion rate in response to varying concentrations of native GLP-1 infusion in patients with type 2 diabetes and in patients without type 2 uh, diabetes during a graded glucose infusion. Now, all of the patients started with similar glucose concentrations at the start of that GLP-1 infusion. They found that infusion of near-physiologic doses of native GLP-1 in patients with type 2 diabetes resulted in a linear increase in beta cell response similar to those of healthy subjects infused with saline. Now, when patients with type 2 diabetes and metabolically healthy control subjects were infused with increasing doses of GLP-1, although patients with type 2 diabetes showed significant beta cell response to GLP-1, the healthy control subjects' beta cell response to GLP-1 was many times higher, demonstrating that there was still a reduced beta cell sensitivity to GLP-1 in patients with type 2 diabetes. So all of these functions are designed to help maintain the appropriateness of insulin secretion, and that is what makes native GLP-1 such an important hormone. So Vivian, can you tell us about impaired beta cell sensitivity to the insulinotropic effects of native GLP-1 in patients with type 2 diabetes? Sure, John. This is an important and often forgotten aspect of pathophysiology. Indeed, beta cells in healthy controls have been found to be markedly more responsive compared to those of patients with type 2 diabetes as measured by insulin secretion in response to native GLP-1 infusions. For example, in patients with type 2 diabetes who received a graded glucose infusion but no GLP-1, there was a delayed but blunted insulin response. That has been established for a long time. When these patients with type 2 diabetes received the highest dose of native GLP-1 infusions, which is about 2 picomoles per kilogram per minute, their insulin response was comparable to that of healthy controls infused with only a fraction of the native GLP-1 infusions, 0.5 picomoles per kilogram per minute. What that tells me is that in type 2 diabetes, there is insufficient GLP-1 activity. Okay. And what about the alpha cells? We know that the failure to suppress glucagon, particularly in the postprandial state, is a key pathophysiologic defect of type 2 diabetes. So what are the effects of native GLP-1 on alpha cells? Another important aspect of pathophysiology that we, we don't pay attention to is the importance of the alpha cell and glucagon. In the alpha cell, the mechanisms of glucagon secretion inhibited by GLP-1 are not completely understood. However, there are receptors to GLP-1 on a minor subpopulation of alpha cells in the pancreas. GLP-1 may bind there or may indirectly block 
glucagon secretion by increasing insulin and somatostatin locally. Thus, there is a paracrine system functioning there that may regulate glucagon secretion. It is known that the physiological effects of GLP-1 on the alpha cell are glucose-dependent, just like in the beta cell. So if the glucose is low, you will not inhibit glucagon secretion. All of this is pretty unique to GLP-1, and there are very few hormones that suppress or stimulate glucagon in the appropriate way we are talking about here. That is very glucose-dependent. So we've talked so far about the pancreatic effects of native GLP-1, but native GLP-1 affects many other organ systems, of course. Jim, can you elaborate on some of the extra pancreatic effects of native GLP-1? I'd be happy to do that, John. Actually, this is one of the more exciting aspects of what we've learned about GLP-1, because these are truly pleiotrophic hormones in the sense that they affect multiple aspects of glucose homeostasis. They affect multiple aspects of metabolic functions. Uh, they have the obvious effects that we've been talking about in the pancreas on the beta cells and the alpha cells. But downstream, there are indirect effects on the liver by virtue of the suppression of glucagon. And you see a reduction in glucose production in the liver. In the GI tract, there are effects on inhibition of gastric motility. And you also slow down gastric emptying. GLP-1 is one of the hormones that acts on areas of the brain that control appetite and feeding behavior to enhance the feeling of satiety and fullness. So that combination of brain effects on the one hand and the slowing down of gastric emptying on the other really helps to explain the role of endogenous GLP-1 in appetite regulation which may contribute to weight control. In muscles, you see improved glucose uptake. Now, this may very well be as a result of the enhanced insulin secretion. Additionally, GLP-1 receptors are expressed in the heart and in blood vessels. While several animal studies have explored the cardiovascular biology of GLP-1, further studies are necessary to establish any effects of endogenous GLP-1 on the uh, human cardiovascular system. So, John, all in all, there are a variety of impacts of native GLP-1 outside of the pancreas that contribute to overall metabolic health. Well, we have come a long way since the initial discovery of GLP-1. We now know that GLP-1 has glucose-dependent insulinotropic effects, that GLP-1 may protect pancreatic beta cells, and that GLP-1 can indirectly reduce glucagon secretion from the alpha cells. It is clear that the pancreatic, as well as the extrapancreatic effects of this hormone, play an evolving role in the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes. Jim and Vivian, I want to thank you for your time and being with us today. This concludes this episode of T2D Don't Sugarcoat It. Please join us next time. I'm Dr. John Anderson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>